Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. See if these words sound familiar to you at all. This isn't fair. I deserve better than this. Anybody ever had a situation in life where you felt that way? Yeah, right? It could be how somebody's treating us. It could be, you know, in a job situation and, you know, maybe we worked harder than somebody else, but they're getting the promotion. Whatever it is, right, we have this whole idea of what we deserve. And, and we're pretty quick to recognize that, aren't we? Right? That's something we, we're right on top of, uh, what we think we deserve. But I tell you what. We really got to be careful with that kind of thinking. Because when we step back and, and look a little more carefully, and we start thinking, what do I really deserve from God? What do I really deserve from God? God, who is perfectly, perfectly, perfectly holy. Never been tempted by sin. Never drawn to sin. Never a desire to sin. Never even a, a, a consideration of sin. As the Bible says, holy, holy, holy. And, and this holy God who has provided, you know, everything that we need for life and godliness. And what have we done as human beings? We have sinned against this holy God. And the Bible is very clear that our sin, our, our active sins, our, our nature of rebellion against God, wanting to do our own thing and not be told what to that all of that rightfully makes us guilty before God. And so when we stand in judgment before God, we will be guilty and the penalty for this, I mean, we, we have a hard time comprehending how holy God is, don't we? We really, really do. But let me see if I can kind of put it in perspective for you. God is so holy that it takes eternity for us. If, we've tried to, if, we, if we end up having to pay for our sins, it takes eternity and it's still never sufficiently paid. And eternity in hell. How holy is God? More holy than we can really comprehend. And so when we have realized that we have sinned before God and that what we rightfully deserve is an eternity separated from him in hell, maybe I'm not in so much of a hurry to want what I think I deserve. Right? Because of what I really deserve. 
And when we realize that this is what we deserve and yet God has, in his great love for us, has provided a way for this penalty to be paid, his son becoming a human being, living this perfect and sinless life, dying on the cross, and as he does it, he's dying for sins that, that weren't his, uh, paying the penalty for those things to the point of experiencing this separation from the Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of this, that he paid the penalty. Jesus took what we deserved. Wow. So I'm not getting what I deserve. Jesus did get what I deserved. And, and you know, when I receive him as Savior, when you receive him as Savior, then we get his payment applied to us and now for all eternity, today, tomorrow, and for the rest of eternity, we don't get what we deserve. We get a gift of grace and mercy. What should that produce in us? That realization that, that you know, what's happening, what, what should that motivate us to do? Well, today's portion of scripture we're gonna look at and we're gonna see that there's some things there that can apply to us as we start to understand that God has so mercifully done for us what we don't deserve, and what should our response be? What, in one particular way, we're gonna look at and focus on. So we're going to be in 2 Kings today. You can turn to 2 Kings if you'd like. We're gonna be looking at a story that happened, and when I say story, I don't mean make-believe, right? When I say story, I mean true story that the Bible records for us. This happens about 800 years before the time of Christ. Uh, if you remember, we've talked a few times this summer about the kingdom of Israel and how it was one nation, but then how it divided, right? It was divided, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And um, <clears throat> because it, the northern kingdom then turned away from the Lord and really began to bring idolatry into their worship to the point where they were eventually taken away captive and within 100, 150 years, the southern kingdom is, is gone the same way. But the story we're gonna look at is right in the height of the northern kingdom, uh, the middle of that time. Uh, so let's take a look at the map here. So here we are, the nation of Israel. We're gonna be talking about the ancient city of Samaria and Syria. And, and uh, that's about where it is, that little red dot. So it's in about two-thirds of the way up in Israel. But Samaria served as the capital of the northern kingdom for many years. And uh, today it doesn't exist. It's just ruins. And there are some towns around it. Uh, but so Syria is, is part of our story today. They are going to come down and attack Samaria. So let's go to the next slide here. So this is, is, is zoomed in a long ways. Uh, the topographical map here, you can see the Jordan River over here, which is, is very low. The city of Samaria, which is up in the mountains. And so uh, primarily, if, if an army was coming, they would travel up through the valley. See where the, the uh, can you tell where the little towns are, the little houses and places, right? Where the population is. Those are like valleys. And so any invading army would come up through those areas, not over the mountaintops. They would come up through there. So let's go to the, the next one. And so most likely when Syria comes to attack, as we're going to see here, they're probably gonna come up through these valleys and make their way up to the city of Samaria. And uh, I'll go to the next one. And so here, city, ancient city of Samaria, surrounded by the Syrians, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. 
And this, where it says down here, valley, the main Syrian camp, this valley, if we could see a big enough map, that valley would be one of those valleys that we saw headed back down toward the Jordan River. And so most likely that's where the big encampment would have been and then they would have had outposts surrounding the city. And so um, the story here uh, involves the prophet Elisha and the, the Syrians and the king of Israel, Jehoram, the king of the northern kingdom there. Um, and, and what has happened is that since the northern kingdom has turned to idolatry, uh, involved in really some pretty terrible things, God keeps working to bring them back. He keeps giving them opportunities and he brings enemies against them. Syria comes against them on more than one occasion. And, and at one of the points, uh, God reveals to Elisha where the Syrian army is camped and when they're coming and Israel is able to use that information to escape the Syrian attack and to stop it. And, and so much so that the Syrian king thinks somebody's a, a spy in the midst. And then another time, he blinds, God blinds the Syrian army and they lead them away and prevent them from coming in. So God has been allowing the enemy to come to try to get their attention and he keeps intervening, hoping that they will turn back to him. By the way, Romans chapter two says, don't you know that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? God does good things in our lives, things that we don't deserve. And even when we aren't where we're supposed to be, he often will do good in our life because his desire is that we would say, what am I doing? God is so good, why am I turned away from here and would turn back to him? And so we see that happening with them here. Now the story we're gonna look at today is God did not stop the Syrians. He didn't, they came and they encamped around Samaria and they, they kept them locked up in there and there was a famine at the time as well. And so Syria, I mean the Samaritans are beginning to starve to death. They don't have food. Of course the king has some more food than everybody else. But it gets so bad that you really can't even buy supplies. You can't buy stuff. It's, it's cost so much money. You know how, because when there's a shortage of supplies, what happens to the prices? They go up, right? And so that's what the situation was here. And it got so bad that some of the people resorted to cannibalism. Now, you know, we know this has happened in history from time to time, but the way it happened in Samaria was that there were two mothers who were so desperate and, and they just knew they were gonna die and so they made an agreement. Okay, today we'll eat your baby and tomorrow we'll eat mine. And that's horrific to even think of, but that's how desperate they were and, I, you know, when you get those desperate situations and no nutrition, you know, you don't even think right. But this is where they were. And, and so the, the first day they killed the baby and ate the baby. And the next day, the mother whose baby had been eaten the day before says, okay, today your baby. And that mother said, no, went and hid the baby. She's not as hungry today. But anyway, so this mother whose baby had been eaten, she cries out and the, the king's walking by and, and she cries out to him and tells him what happened. And he is just so overwhelmed that, that his city has come to this place and he is angry with Elisha because Elisha hasn't delivered us this time. It's Elisha's fault, but it doesn't take very long. He thinks about it and he starts to realize, wait a minute, this isn't Elisha's doing, this is God's doing. The God is indeed judging us for how we have lived, how we have worshiped, and haven't worshiped God properly. And so this is the situation that we're in. It is so desperate, you know, people are dying from this and it's only gonna get worse. 
Okay? And that's where we come to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. If you have a, uh, don't have a Bible with you, we encourage you to take one from underneath the chairs there and turn to page 429 and follow along with us. 2 Kings chapter 7. It says, Then Elisha said, the king is there with him. Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So a shekel being that smallest coin that they had. And a seah is about eight gallons. All right. And so, you know, tomorrow you'll be able to buy 16 gallons of barley for what? What does it say? For a shekel? Yeah, for that smallest of coins. So what does that mean? That means that somehow or other something has to change, doesn't it? Because this stuff isn't available now because it's a famine and they're being besieged and all of this situation. So verse number two. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned, and that's a, a figure of speech that means that the king depended on this. This, this guy was like his right-hand man, his closest advisor, the one who gave him counsel. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God, said this to Elisha, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And see, very skeptical, skeptical even that God would have anything to, you know, God couldn't even do this. Which, by the way, it's those kinds of attitudes that got him in this situation. But anyway, so he doesn't believe this. And he, Elisha, said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Kind of a little bit of a cryptic, uh, prophetic statement. You'll see this, what I just told you, but you're not going to eat of it. You're not going to enjoy the benefit of it. All right, so let's read on. Verse 3, now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall only die, which is what we're doing anyway, Right? We're dying anyway. Now, lepers um, in the, the, the Old Testament here, I mean, these guys weren't really living by the scriptures much anyway. But the lepers were considered unclean and, and being unclean, they were not able to walk freely amongst the rest of the people um, because they had this disease. And there's different forms of things that are called leprosy, but the most common is what's known as Hansen's disease. Okay, Hansen's disease. Um, and what Hansen's disease does is it begins to rob you of the ability in your, your extremities, and it, it, as it continues, to feel pain. You lose sensation and lose the ability to feel pain. And as a result, you injure yourself. Because what does pain tell us to do? Don't do that, right? Stop doing that, you know. Uh, and so people lose the ability of that. Now, uh, uh, there's a guy named Dr. Henry Brandt who, who spent years working with people with this kind of leprosy in India. And um, they discovered things like this. 
So he said they would be going someplace and, and they would go to some building or whatever and need to get in it and there was a lock on it that was rusted and they couldn't get it unlocked. And then like some little kid would step up and unlock it. How in the world, and they, then they would look, well this little kid had just gouged to the bone in his fingers. Whereas the other people stop because the pain stops you. They lost that ability. So now they have injured themselves, damaged themselves. Because they don't feel pain, they don't take care of it, gets infected, gangrene sets, right? It's a real mess. They tell a story about a, a man that they had really prepared because they had to try to prepare them to live out on their own. And so finally one man did that and he went out into his own place and the very first night when he woke up the next morning, a couple of his toes had been chewed off by a rat and he had not felt it. You see, this is what leprosy was like. And this is why they would often be deformed and, and mess. And so they weren't allowed to go into the city because they were concerned about this being contagious. All right. And so what we find, we find lepers, they would, they would live right outside the city walls. And that's where these four lepers are. And they're sitting here and said, we're dying, right? We are starving to death just like the people in the city are starving to death. If we go back in there, we, if we try to go in the city, we're just going to die like they are. If we stay here, we're going to die. So what? We might as well go give ourselves up to the enemy. They just might let us live. All right? This is an act of desperation, isn't it? Because the Syrians were not nice people either. Okay? They were really not that they, if you think about like ISIS capturing you. It's that kind of thing, okay? So that's where they were headed. All right. So let's read on. Verse number six. No, no, verse number five. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. So go to that map, if you would. So let's remind ourselves. So Syria undoubtedly had, like I said, had some outposts and maybe patrols here and there. Uh, but it's getting toward evening and uh, the main camp is down here. And so the, the lepers have to make their way some way down here to this camp. And when they get there to the outskirts, nobody was there. There were no sentinels. There was nobody, sentries out there. Verse 6, for the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses. The noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. So God again has miraculously intervened, but nobody knows about it, right? God has caused them to hear what they think are big armies and they assume that, that some of Israel's allies have come to help deliver them and they just take off they, and they leave everything behind. Verse number eight. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Man, they're having a high old time, aren't they? I mean, here they are. First of all, they've been, you know, on the verge of starvation. And now there's more food than they know what to do with. And they're eating it. They're enjoying it. But not only that, there's wealth here. There's riches here to be had. And so they're taking that stuff and going and hide it. They haven't had this stuff in their life. They've been the lepers living outside the gate with like nothing. Man, this is awesome. They've never had this in their whole life. And why do they have it? 
Because God has done something miraculous. And now they are experiencing this and enjoying it tremendously. Was it wrong for them to eat? Was it wrong for them to enjoy it? Was it wrong for them to take the spoils of the battle? None of that's wrong, is it? But they say something here, verse 9. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. Let's just stop there. We are not doing right. Well, what do you mean? This is what you should do. You come and find us. This is exactly what you should do. But it became very clear to them that they were not doing what's right. So let's continue. See what they're saying. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. All right. So here they are. God has done something for them which they did not deserve. It's a miraculous thing. They could have never brought this about on their own. God had done this and they are so blessed for it. And then it dawns on them, what? That all of our fellow people back in the city are still starving to death tonight. We haven't told them. Here we are enjoying it all and we're not telling them. We remain silent. And they realize how bad it is. They say, if we wait until morning light to tell them tomorrow morning, some punishment will come upon us. And this is, this is so wrong that, you know, God will punish us if we don't do something about this. Now, therefore, they said, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly, no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night. So they had to wake the king up to tell him this. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And obviously that, that makes sense, right? Because it doesn't make sense for them just to be gone. It must be a trap. Verse 13, and one of his servants answered and said, please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed I say they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed, those who have died from this. So let us send them and see. Now, so what do we have to lose, king? You know, they're thinking the same way the lepers were, right? Let, let's just go see what's going to happen. They're going to die. And guess what? They're dying anyway. Verse 14, therefore they took two chariots with horses and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army saying, go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan and indeed, so they went down to where the camp should have been and they continued going, heading toward the Jordan River down that valley. And indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. There's so much now that it's, you know, it's cheap even to buy it. There's so much available. Just like Elisha said. Verse 17. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned, the guy we talked about earlier, had appointed him to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So the, this 
sort of a cryptic prophetic statement by Elisha comes to pass. This man dies. So many things here we could talk about today. And I'm just going to focus in on a couple areas. And the first one is this. I mean, God was working in their lives, wasn't he? They didn't know it. You know, here they are. They're, they're feeling desperate. And they're realizing that they're here because of their own choices and their disobedience to God. And there's not a thing they can do to change it. But God was doing something to change it. And so here's, here's a, a truth that we need to grab on and live by. And when we find ourselves in the most desperate situations, completely beyond our ability, we discover that God is at work and he's able to do whatever needs to be done. Things that we absolutely cannot do, he can do. He can do what needs to be done. And so God lets us come to these places in our lives where we find ourselves in situations that are beyond our ability. Sometimes it's because of our bad choices and God lets us experience those things. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and other times it's um, not our doing. And sometimes we can even be obeying him. That was the case of the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, he and his companions preaching the gospel faithfully. Persecution comes. Such severe persecution that they don't even know if they're going to live. In fact, here in, in, in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. It's, 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 you know, there's no way we can survive this. The next verse, he says this. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God. Who raises the dead? I think that who raises the dead is kind of like a, by the way, this is the God who can even raise the dead. But get that, Paul says that coming to these places in life that are beyond us, the places, I don't like to be in those places. Do you like to be in those places? Whereas this is not a good place to be and I can't fix it. It's beyond my ability. I don't even know. I don't like to be in those places. But Paul says, you know what? It's when we come to those places that we learn to stop relying on ourselves and start relying on God. Stop relying on our own wisdom. Stop relying on our own ways of doing things. Stop relying on our own way of thinking about things. Stop relying on our own plans. Stop relying on our strengths. Whatever it is, we've got to stop depending on those things. Not that you don't use them, but you just don't depend on them anymore. You depend on God, who, by the way, can raise the dead. And then he continues. Here's what he found. He says, and he did rescue us from mortal danger and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. And so as Christians, we wanna to get to this place in our lives where we stop relying on ourselves and start relying on God. And every time we find ourselves starting to go back to relying on ourselves, we say, wait a minute, no, rely on God, depend on God. And we depend on God by doing what he says. We depend on God by doing things the way he says. We depend on God by trusting him and taking those steps of faith. That's how we depend on God. All right? But isn't it good to know that God is at work in our lives even when we can't see it? And he's able to do those things that we absolutely cannot do. Now, 
I want to take a little bit of a corner here and spend the rest of our time, the next few minutes, talking about what we need to do when we understand how God has delivered us. All right? So you remember here, Samaria is and the lepers are, they are what? They have any hope? No, no hope. Their best hope is to give themselves to the enemy who wants to kill them. That's their best hope. They have no hope. They have no solution. Well, that's the way people who don't know the Lord are. People who do not, do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, have not placed their faith in him, they have no hope. They cannot fix the problem on their own. They can't give their way out of the problem. They can't go to church out of the, their way out of the problem. Can't do good works to get themselves out. They're hopeless, helpless. They have sinned against the holy God and there's no solution, no deliverance unless God does something. All right? And just like in the story, God miraculously did something so God miraculously has done for people who don't know the Lord, which was all of us at one point, wasn't it? He has provided his son, you know, who comes to earth, becomes a man, the man Jesus, who lives that perfect and sinless life and dies on the cross for us. And as he dies, he pays the penalty for our sin, the eternal penalty for our sins, rise again from the dead. And God has provided victory over sin and death. And if we trust Christ to save, receive him, man, he forgives every sin, gives us eternal life, moves in and begins to change our lives in good ways from the inside out as we cooperate with him. And, and God has done, and it's miraculous. It's not a thing we could have ever done to fix that. On our own, we are lost. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. On their own, nobody understands this. No one seeks after God on their own. No, not one. See, totally lost, but God has miraculously provided a way for their need to be met. Then, God worked. I mean, if, what if these lepers had not made this decision to go look? This would have been all in vain, wouldn't it? Nobody would have ever known. But somehow or other, I believe God prompted them, gave them an idea. Let's go see. And they went and see, and the rest, we know the rest of the story. Well, you understand, that's the way we are when we were unsaved. When we were lost, you know, we weren't figuring this out on our own. God was at work in our lives, though. God was using our circumstances to make us see that we needed him. God was parading creation in front of us each and every day. You know, causing us to realize there must be a God here. God was working through the people in our lives. All of these things, and... He brought us to the place where we understood we needed him. And somehow, some way, we heard the gospel. Somebody shared the gospel with us. Whether we received a gospel tract, whether we got invited to church. For me, that's the way it was. I got invited to church where they preached the gospel. We, we uh, uh, you know, maybe we saw something on television. We had a friend who talked to us, whatever. God brought that information to us. And then we were able to be saved. Well, see, just like these lepers, you know, they, they just had this idea and God was working and so they stepped out on it and then they discovered what God had done. And so it is with you and I. We, we need a savior, he makes us aware of it and then we discover because someone tells us. 
somehow, someway, someone gets the word to us. Now, far too often, we don't let others know what God has done for us. True? There's some of you here today, probably a few of you who are great at sharing the gospel. You do it regularly, you know, you just, it's part of who you are. But most of us struggle to share the gospel the way we think we probably ought to. And so we find ourselves like these lepers, if we, if we think about it. They said, we are not doing right. This is good news. And we what? Remain silent. I know that I have remained silent far too many times. And I might venture to say you have too. And, and so think about what we do. You know, the lepers, they go, they found this, they had this wonderful discovery. They go into the tents and they, they gather this. First they eat and, and enjoy that. And then they, they take the wealth, wealth and riches with them and they go and they hide it and they come back and they do it again. And, and meanwhile, the people in the city are, are, are dying. And so what, what do we do? We, we come to church. We know Christ. We come to church and we eat and we talk with each other and say, oh, isn't it wonderful what Jesus has done for us? Is it wonderful what Jesus has done for us? Is it? Absolutely. And we come and we talk about it and we enjoy it and we celebrate it and we take these riches and then we go back out and we do what? We, we hide it. We hide it. And we come back to church next week and we do the same thing and we leave and we hide it. We, when we're doing that, we are not doing right. We have this good news and we remain silent. And so we need to do something about this. We need to get involved somehow in bringing the gospel to those who need. We need to follow the examples of the lepers. Because when they came to this realization that we, you know, we're keeping silent, we're going to do this. So they went and told them. That's what we need to do. We need to go and tell. Go and tell. Now, I understand the difficulties that we find ourselves in when we're talking about doing this. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We need to come to this conclusion that, wow, God has done this for us that we don't deserve and we experience the abundance of it. And, and understand this, the people around you who do not know Jesus, those who have not received Christ, they're just like you were before you received Christ. They are lost. They are on their way to hell. If they die without Christ, that's where they will be. And you and I have what they need. Now, the people around you, when you try to share, they may not be interested. You can't, that's, the, you know, that's not your business, but you want to be faithful. So let me just give you a few ideas here about how you can begin to tell First of all, it's be dependent. Be dependent. You got to be dependent on God. You do not have the, any ability to make someone change their heart. You do not. You don't even really have the ability to persuade them intellectually. You can't make anybody get saved. And, and you're scared to death to talk to them. And so we have to be dependent on God. God, this is too big for me. 
It's overwhelming to me. I don't know what to do about this. Well, what did Paul say when things got overwhelming? What did he learn to do? Not to rely on himself, but to rely only on God. Okay, God, you've told me I'm to be a witness, and I know these people need it, and I want to share it with them, but I don't know what to say. I don't know how to act. I don't know, but you've told me to do it. God, I'm depending on you. Okay, and you take a step. Be dependent on the Lord. It's not your great wisdom or cleverness that's going to get anybody saved. Second thing is be real. Be real as a Christian. Hypocrisy is the worst thing that you can possibly have. And if you're trying to act like a Christian and then over here you're involved in all the gossip and the cutting people down. I mean, put any scenario, right? You've just undermined your witness. So be real. Don't be that way. Be real. Not be perfect. Be real. Christians aren't perfect. Just be real. Be a real Christian. Then be interested. Be interested in these people that are around you. You know, don't be thinking, how can I, tell, how can I say these words to them? Forget that. You're going to be a real Christian and you are going to, you're depending on God, you're being real. Be interested in them as people. They're worth knowing. Get to know them. Find out about them. Find out what they believe, what they care about, what's going on in their lives. What's happening that they're struggling with? Be interested in them and communicate that, care about them. Then be open. Be open. And we talked many times around here about being openly Christian. And what it is so awkward, and I don't think it's God's intent that we sit around and in a conversation, you know, they're talking about the Patriots and how bad it was that they lost and all this kind of stuff. And, you, and in the middle of that conversation, you jump in and you say, you must be saved. Uh, we wouldn't do that extreme. But yet we still feel like somehow or other we're supposed to, right? Say these, stop that. Be openly Christian. And being openly Christian means that you talk like a Christian. How does a Christian talk? So we're talking about something with them. And, and here we are, we're saying, yeah, man, this is, okay, I'll give you an example. For me and my father. I just moved my father up here from Missouri. All right, and uh, I had asked you guys to pray for that. And everything went as smooth as it possibly could have gone, okay? But so I've had a couple conversations with people who don't know the Lord. But this comes up about my father, and I said, I've said, yeah, Boy, you know, I asked my church to pray about this because it, it really could have been hard. And, but I tell you what, I think God answered that prayer because everything went as smoothly as it possibly could have gone. I'm being what? Openly Christian, because that's, that's who I am and that's where my life is. And, and so we talk about it. We may come up, we went to church, you know, or, or when they're talking about something and they're telling you it's something really hard in their family, their, their son, their, their wife, their and, and you, what would a Christian say? A Christian would say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm going to pray for you about that. Oh, you just said the P word. Right? I mean, I'll pray for you about that. In fact, there's nobody around, right? Would you, would you like, I could pray with you about that, right? Would you like me to pray with you for this? And they might say, oh, no, 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 fine. Say, I'll pray later. But if they let you, you pray with them. Right then, Father, help them in this situation and help them to know you through this. And uh, you see what you're doing? You're being open. And you're letting that life out into the people, lives, people around you. Then be ready. Be ready because God is going to give you opportunities. 
When you begin living like this, he's going to give you opportunities. Be ready to, to listen to what's going on. Be ready to help these people, maybe in some practical way. Be ready to invite them into your life. Be ready to whatever. Be ready. Because if you start asking God, say, God, I, I'm going to depend on you and I want to be this witness. You've told me to be a witness and these people need you. God, I want to do this. Do you think God's going to say, no, 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 I'm not interested? No, you start asking God this and you start stepping out in faith. He's going to bring you opportunities. In fact, if, if you begin to become one of these people who will be open and ready to witness, God will start bringing people to you that he's working in their lives. So be ready. Be inviting and obviously this means in your personal life, you know, invite them into your personal life. Invite them over to your house if it makes sense. Be inviting. Invite them to church. You know, we, somebody's going to think we don't do it. Don't invite them. You've got to say, hey, you know what? My church has just been such an encouragement. I, I, you really ought to come with me sometime. Because I, I, it's just been so good for me. Help me to understand who God is and how to have a relationship with him. You ought to come with me. How about this Sunday? Ask, be inviting. Maybe even invite them to receive Christ as Savior, depending on where the conversation is gone. And then finally, believe. Believe. Because God will work. Remember, He's at work all around you in ways that you don't even see or know. And if you start living this way, He's going to bring that into your life and work there in amazing ways. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you have saved us, that you have delivered us, Lord, something we could never have done ourselves. We could never have solved our sin problem, but you did by sending your son. Thank you that you brought us to know that. I pray, Father, you'd stir our hearts, really stir them up big time and give us no peace until we get serious about becoming faithful witnesses for you, sharing our lives, sharing our faith so that others may know you. And Father, I, I look forward to hearing stories of big things that you've done, surprising things to us that you have done. And I'm looking forward to having people around here, Father, who are saved because we have been faithful to do what you've given us to do. Remind us, Father, that we just kind of need to, to relax and chill out on this too because we are, we're just like these spiritual lepers who have found a wonderful thing that you have done. I pray that we will do what's right and not keep silence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Have a great week. You're dismissed. Go out and share your faith. Thank you.